Tonight's readers are Andre Debus III, Daniel Goldfarb, Ada Limon, Akil Sharma, and Jennifer Haig. Pretty awesome lineup. I'm just going to read their bios, um, hopefully in the order that I think that they should read. And hopefully you guys can remember the order that I read in, because I won't remember. Somebody can do that for me. And, and then I'm going to get off the stage, because that's always a good idea for me. So, <clears throat> Akil Sharma is going to be our first reader. Akil Sharma's most recent novel, Fam- Family Life, won the Folio Prize for Fiction. His first book won the Penn Hemingway Prize. His stories have been anthologized in Best American Short Stories and the O. Henry Awards. Amazing writer. Um, second will be, let's see, who should go second? Hmm. Any votes? How about Jennifer Haig? Jennifer Haig is the author of Heat and Light, News from Heaven, Faith, The Condition, Baker Towers, and Mrs. Kimball. Her books have won the Penn Hemingway Award for Debut Fiction, the Massachusetts Book Award, and she's been published in over 16 languages. Third will be a playwright. Daniel Goldfarb, whose newest play, Legacy, recently premiered at the Williamstown Theater Festival. He was an, the ex, an executive story editor on, editor on FX's Tyrant and DirecTV's Rogue, and has developed pilots for Showtime, CBS, and Sphere Media. His work includes screenplays for HBO, Maven Pictures, and Chicago Films. Fourth will be Andre Dubuse III. I think that's kind of a nice ring to it. He's the author of six books, a wonderful guy, including the New York Times bestsellers House of Sand and Fog, The Garden of Last Days, and a memoir called Townie. And last will be a poet, because I'm a poet and I get to choose, and I believe that poetry is the highest art and should go last. Yeah. That was kind of tepid. Come on, poets, where are you? Come on, poets, don't be shy. Yeah. Ada Limon is the author of four books of poetry, including Bright Dead Things, which was a finalist for the National Book Award and the National Book Critics Circle Award, and it was named one of the top ten poetry books by the New York Times. Pretty damn good. All these books are available. All the authors have books available in the back at the pop-up tattered cover bookstore. I'm sure they'll be available to sign for you. So let's give a warm round of applause for our first reader who is, who did I say? Akil Sharma. Thank you. So I'll read from both of my novels. Um, so my f- first book is titled An Obedient Father. Um, and I'll read uh, f- from the beginning and maybe a little bit, about a third of the way in. And as I read, I oftentimes talk about what I was thinking, you know, the strategies of a writer. I needed to force money from Father Joseph, and it was making me nervous. He had bribed me once before for a building permit, soon after he became principal of Rosary School. Also, he had admitted my granddaughter, Asha, into his school without our having to make the enormous donation usually required. But Father Joseph was strange and unpredictable. I began the book this way uh, because people love fights. (laughs) You know... Like the the reality is, you know, I could be, some people could be performing Hamlet up here, and if two idiots in the back begin punching each other, we'll all turn around to look at the idiots. <laughs> uh, 
And so, you know, as a writer, you have to learn to exploit human nature. Uh, the problem is that as soon as you promise a fight, people become excited, you know. The bloodthirst takes over. And uh, so you now need to sort of slow down. You need to do a little bit of a bait and switch, right? And... Uh, the usually, if you want to slow people's uh, attention down, uh, the easiest way to do it is to switch into humor. Uh, because once you make a joke, once you can get people to smile a bit, they become much more tolerant. They become much more willing to see, um, to just wait. Okay. So, but Father Joseph was strange and unpredictable. Several months ago, his school in a posh part of Old Delhi had given a dinner party to introduce him. Because of my work for the Delhi Municipal Education Department, I was invited. During the party, Father Joseph demonstrated his expertise in karate. <laughs> the party was in the school's front field. A steel pole had been cemented upright several meters from the buffet tables. Father Joseph, short and heavy, and heavy with muscle, wearing the white robe of a karate teacher, beat at the pole for half an hour with his bare feet and fists, while 40 or 50 people watched and ate. Sometimes he would step a few feet from the pole and groan at it. Near the end of his demonstration, he became so tired that there were pauses as long as a minute between blows. Because this was so odd, and because Father Joseph had spoken to me in English when the party started, at first I thought the display might be an example of a foreign affectation. After he was done, still dressed in the robe, Father Joseph spent the rest of the night meeting his guests. He kept clenching and unclenching his hands from soreness. So, you know, so there's been a promise of a fight, then there's sort of a shifting of gears through humor, and now you need to begin doing some world building, you know, so you, be, so you switch into visuals. Uh, largely because you want, uh, the way that people invest in a story, in a situation, requires you triggering all their sort of, um, all the ways that they value and feel something is real. So you trigger plot, uh, you trigger sort of, oh, this is, these are human beings, and then you trigger the awareness that this is a specific visual world. It was morning. The sky was a single blue from edge to edge. I had just bathed and was on my balcony hanging a towel over the ledge. The May heat was so intense that as soon as I stepped out of the flat, sweat appeared on my bald scalp. In the swatter colony behind our compound, several women crouched before their huts, cooking breakfast on kerosene stoves. Two men wearing only shorts and rubber slippers stood next to a hand pump, soaping their bodies. On the roof of a nearby building, a woman was bathing her daughter with a tin bucket and a bowl. The naked girl, perhaps seven or eight years old, kept slipping out of her mother's grasp and running about the roof. And now, you know, <clears throat> so all these, all the machinery has been set up and I need to now feed, give background, right? And uh, so I need to slip him into reverie. The, you know, I can just do it, right? It's it's not a hard thing to do, right? The, but as a writer, um, this protagonist uh, we'll discover later on is a child molester, 
right? And so he is now going to slip into reverie while looking at a, a naked girl, little naked girl running back and forth on the roof. Mostly the reader will not pick up on this detail, right? Because mostly people don't read uh, a book over and over, nor do they tend to read that carefully. As uh, a writer, though, you need to try to be impeccable for yourself, for your own peace of mind. You know, it's a little bit like how tailors, when they're doing their stitching, make sure to spend as much energy on the stitches that cannot be seen as on the stitches that are seen. Uh, so the naked girl, perhaps seven or eight years old, kept slipping out of her mother's grasp and running about the roof. I had been Mr. Gupta's money man for a little less than a year and was no good. It did not take me long to realize this, and once I did, unwilling to give up the increased pay, I tried to delight in having achieved a position that exceeded my ability. I enjoyed believing that I had tricked Mr. Gupta into giving me a place near all the illegal money that poured through the education department. This pleased me so much that I pictured myself weeping in the middle of negotiations with some school principal and calling myself a whore while I kept a hand over my heart. But on the mornings before bribe collections, these fantasies came involuntarily. Now, instead of making me laugh, they made me feel threatened, as if I were crazy and out of control. The principals I extorted were better educated than I was and generally far more competent and responsible. I had never graduated from higher secondary, and my job as a junior officer, officer in the physical education department officially involved little more than counting cricket bats and badminton rackets and making sure that 4% of a school's land was used for physical education. My panic in negotiations was so apparent that even people who were eager to bribe me became resentful. <laughs> At the meals they were custom-bound to serve with the bribe, they joked about my weight. You're, you're as good as two men, they might say, as I piled food on my plate, or would remark, have you been fasting? With principals who appeared even more uncertain than I was, I sometimes grew angry to the point of incoherence. Occasionally, because of my heart attack seven months earlier and the medicines I now took, I talked with them. Uh, with the, I now took, I talked with them, got tired, confused, and sleepy. My general incompetence and laziness at work had been apparent for so long that I now think it was arrogant of Mr. Gupta to pick me as his money man. I am the type of person who does not make sure that a file includes all the pages it must have or that the pages are in the right order. I refuse to accept even properly placed blame. <laughs> Lying outright that somebody else had misplaced the completed forms or spilled tea on them, even though I was the last one to sign them out or had the soggy papers still on my desk. All this is common for a certain type of civil servant who knows that he's viewed with disdain by his superiors and that he cannot lose his job. My predecessor as money man, Mr. Bajwa, used to lie even about what he had brought for lunch. He would rather eat on the office roof than not lie. Mr. Bajwa had incredible energy. Mr. Bajwa, however, had incredible energy. He also had a compulsion to court everyone who came near him. Many times he had told me that I was one of his best friends, even though it was apparent that he did not like me. He had to be replaced when V.P. Singh defeat, defeated Rajiv Gandhi and became prime minister in the last elections. The Central Bureau of Investigation wanted to show its loyalty to, to the new rulers by attacking the Congress party and its supporters. 
They brought corruption charges against Mr. Bajwa. Since then, Rajiv Gandhi had forced out VP Singh and put Rajiv's pawn Chandrasekhar in power, and the upcoming elections might make Rajiv Gandhi prime minister again. When the mother finished bathing her daughter, I went inside. Uh, so that's just, um, you know, I could read more. I, I, I oftentimes, the reason I, I describe what I'm doing, uh, you know, as I write, um, is largely because, you know, I spent so much damn time writing this thing and nobody appreciates it. <laughs> um, so... I'm going to just read uh, something from um, Family Life, uh, my most recent novel. When I was a child, I thought my father had been assigned to us by the government. (laughs) This was because he appeared to serve no purpose. When he got home in the evening, all he did was sit in his chair in the living room, drink tea, and read the paper. Often he looked angry. By the time we left for America, I knew that the government had not sent him to live with us. Still, I continue to think he served no purpose. Um, You know, I uh, used to think that about my dad. You know, I used to wonder... When I was a little kid, you know, my father traveled a lot for work. I used to think he would show up periodically, and I would think, who is this man? Why is he always here? Uh, your children think weird thoughts, of course, you know? Uh, like, as a little boy, I, was, I thought my mother was the most beautiful woman in the world, and I hoped that one day I would get to marry her, you know? Um, as As far back as I can remember, my parents have bothered each other. In India, we lived in two cement rooms on the roof of a two-story house in Delhi. The bathroom stood separate from the living quarters. It had a sink attached to the outside of one of the walls. Each night, my father would stand before the sink, the sky full of stars, and brush his teeth till his gums bled. Then he would spit the blood into the sink and turn to my mother and say, Death, Shubha, death! No matter what we do, we will all die! Yes, yes, beat drums, my mother said once. Tell the newspapers, too. Make sure everyone knows this thing you have discovered. (laughs) Like many people of her generation, those born before independence, my mother viewed gloom as unpatriotic. To complain was to show that one was not willing to accept difficulties, that one was not willing to do the hard work that was needed to build the country. My father is two years older than my mother. Unlike her... He saw dishonesty and selfishness everywhere. Not only did he see these things, but he believed that everybody else did too, and that they were deliberately not acknowledging what they saw. My mother's irritation at his spitting blood, he interpreted as hypocrisy. Uh, You know, I spent 12 and a half years writing this book, right? Uh, It's not a long book. It's 225 pages. You know, I wrote um, a total of 7,000 pages, so 36 drafts, or 30, and each time I did a draft, I would just start with a, uh, an empty screen. Because otherwise you end up, you, you know, you keep all the vestigial stuff because you get so tired, so unhappy. So I would just begin with a, with a new screen. 
And so, you know, people ask me, like, when did I realize this thing was nearly done? And uh, to me, the most lovely things in life, right, the, the things... The things that are noble, right? The things that are decent are, tend to be right near absolute idiocy. And so when you begin to see, when I began to see sentences like, each night my father would stand before the sink, the sky full of stars, and brush his teeth till his gums bled, I thought, all right, this thing is nearly done. <laughs> uh, I also like to have um, all of my characters be right and all of my characters be wrong. You know, and so the mother is right in saying, you know, what is the value of all of this pointless doom, gloom? <coughs> um, she's right in that, but her motivation for it is largely, what will the neighbors think? You know, and the father is of course wrong in that he's cynical about everything. Except if you know India, it makes sense to be cynical about everything. <laughs> um, my father had wanted to emigrate to the West ever since he was in his early 20s, ever since America liberalized its immigration policies in 1965. His wish was born out of self-loathing. Often when he walked down a street in India, he would feel that the buildings he passed were indifferent to him, that he mattered so little to them that he might as well not have been born. Because he attributed this feeling to his circumstances and not to the fact that he was the sort of person sensing buildings having opinions of him, he believed that if he were somewhere else, especially somewhere where he earned in dollars and so was rich, he would be a different person and not feel the way he did. Another reason he wanted to emigrate was that he saw the West as glamorous with the excitement of science. In India in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, science felt very much like magic. I, re I remember that when we turned on the radio, first the voices would sound far away, and then they would rush at us, and this created the sense of the machine making some special effort just for us. Of everybody in my family, my father loved science the most. The way he tried to bring it into his life was by going to medical clinics and having his urine tested. <laughs> of course, hypochondria had something to do with this. My father felt that there was something wrong with him and perhaps this was a simple thing that a doctor could fix. Also, when he sat in the clinics and talked to doctors in lab coats, he felt that he was close to important things, that what the doctors were doing was what, the same as what doctors would do in England or Germany or America, and so he was already there in those foreign countries. My mother had no interest in emigrating for herself. She was a high school teacher of economics, and she liked her job. She said that teaching was the best job possible, that one received respect and one learned things as well as taught them. Yet my mother was aware that the West would provide me and my brother with opportunities. Then came the emergency. After Indira Gandhi suspended the constitution and, and put thousands of people in jail, my parents, like nearly everyone, lost faith in the government. Before then, my parents, even my father, were proud enough of India being independent that when they saw a cloud, they would think, that's an Indian cloud. After the emergency, they began to feel that even though they were ordinary and not likely to get into trouble with the government, it might still be better to leave. In 1978, my father left for America. You know, um, the I tried with family life to make it as close to my own life as possible, uh, largely because I wanted to memorialize my family. Uh, before writing it, I asked my parents' permission. You know, so... When I talked to my mother, 
uh, you know, I said, I was planning to write this novel, and was it okay with her? She said, Akhil, just make me look good. Uh, and my father doesn't read, right? He doesn't read, nor does he believe that anybody else reads. <laughs> so if you were to tell him that you had read a book, he would think you were just trying to make him feel bad by telling this lie. Uh, so when I told him I was, that I was planning to write this book, he said, he felt sad for me. He said, Akhil, if you want to keep a secret, put it in a book. Uh, Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Jennifer Haig. It is so humbling to read after Akhil Sharma. Um, I, I talked about his first novel in workshop this week. I think An Obedient Father is as good a first novel as I have ever read in my life. It's, it's really a remarkable book. Okay, um, I'm going to read from uh, my recent novel, Heat and Light. This is a book set mostly in Pennsylvania, western Pennsylvania, where I grew up. And it deals with uh, the advent of gas drilling to this region, fracking, and, and how it has transformed life in this small town. Um, but it was a, a large and complicated project. It was a book that um, ultimately became about much more than the question of fracking. It's, um, it's a book about energy and uh, our relationship to energy and the extraordinary lengths we're willing to go to to get it. Um, typically when I read from this book, I read something about fracking or something about coal mining or oil drilling. Tonight I'm going to read something totally different. I've never read this out loud before. This is a scene uh, that takes place in March 1979. Uh, some of you are old enough to remember this time. You're old enough to remember what Est was. Um, so this is, um, this is a weekend Est convention. They're all assholes. It is the first learning of the weekend. You're here today because your life doesn't work. You're an asshole because you pretend that it does. The maestro paces the makeshift stage, silent in his shoes. He is lean and preternaturally handsome, a genuine celebrity, a regular on the talk show circuit, a man thanked at awards shows. A young woman hovers at the edge of the stage, waiting to refill his water glass. In each corner of the room stands a burly security guard. The hotel ballroom is windowless, aggressively air-conditioned. It might be 100 degrees outside or 10 below. It might be noon or midnight or any time in between. In fact, it is a Saturday afternoon in early spring. San Francisco Bay, lost in fog. In the fourth row, a surfer kid squirms in his clothes, Dacron dress slacks that make his legs itch. Your life doesn't work, and you are responsible. In this training, you will get that you didn't just happen to be lying in the tracks when the train came. You are the asshole who put yourself there. The assholes fidget in their straight-back chairs, utilitarian, <laughs> stackable, and await further insights. They have paid their $300 and have made certain agreements. 
There will be no tape recording or talking during the training. There will be no eating or drinking or trips to the bathroom. The agreements are famous. Like the profanity, the dressing down, they are part of the mythology. The pronouncements delivered with unassailable authority, a stranger's wholesale dismissal of all they are and all they do. Most people go through their whole lives standing in the freeway, waving the traffic in the opposite direction to the way it's going. His tone is thoughtful, conversational, as though his words have been chosen for these particular assholes and for them alone. Well, I got news for you. Traffic is going where it's going. It doesn't give a shit how you feel about it, and neither does life. The surfer kid is dazzled. He is 19 and prone to misplaced compassion. In ways he is just beginning to understand, this has made him a victim and a fool. Recent events have confirmed his congenital gullibility, his vulnerability to manipulation. If you believe that, you got a hole in your screen door. That's what his mother is always telling him, never mind that she's usually the one doing the manipulating. It is the fundamental flaw in his character, serious, possibly fatal. Beggars in the streets smell him coming, the stink of patsyhood rising off him, one part credulity and one part embarrassment. A rich boy ashamed of his private school softness, his stepfather's munificence. In the front row, a fat man raises his hand. I'll be honest, I'm not thrilled about paying 300 bucks to be called an asshole. The maestro sips his water. Fabulous, he says. An all-purpose response. If you call him a son of a bitch, he will answer in one of four ways. I get it. I hear you. Thank you. Fabulous. Also, why do you get to drink water? I, I get to drink water because I didn't make an agreement not to drink water. He pronounces it water, a Philly street kid despite his $100 haircut. Do you have a persistent nagging problem? Do you have too many to count? Choose one then. Bodily sensations are good. Migraines, insomnia, back pain. You fear airplanes or public speaking. Leaving your house gives you panic attacks. Choose one, asshole. Your pack-a-day habit, your shoplifting, your nail-biting or freebasing cocaine. Pick a symptom or a troubling emotion, a destructive behavior you can't seem to help. Choose one and call it your item. Sharing is encouraged. Join the other assholes taking turn at the mic. Pablo's item is betrayal. His wife gave him herpes. Julie fears abandonment. She fakes orgasms. Assholes, remember your agreements. Each revelation is to be acknowledged with applause. The assholes can't stop sharing. For hours on end, they take turns at the mic. Time stands still in the hotel ballroom. Civilizations rise and fall. Lifetimes pass. Gilbert steals his mother's painkillers. Jerry dreams vividly of fucking his sister-in-law. Kay's husband likes wearing her underclothes. It is altogether a fail-safe antidote to excessive compassion. Spend 60 hours in this room and you will hate every one of these people. The surfer kid, who has never so much as made a fist in anger, is ready to beat them all senseless. The maestro quizzes each asshole with rabbinic patience. 
Can you locate the sensation in your body? What is its shape, its color, its provenance? The mother who locked you in a closet, the horny babysitter. Childhood is a minefield, clearly. No one comes out intact. The surfer kid studies him, mesmerized. Abruptly, he gets to his feet. A volunteer rushes in with a mic. My item is anger, he begins, surprising himself. He is known for his sunny disposition, his unwavering benevolence. The maestro interrupts him. Where's your name tag? Almost imperceptibly, the security guards advance. I didn't get a name tag, says the kid, hearing his own Texas twang. The maestro flashes his famous smile. He didn't get a name tag? Another volunteer, a blonde girl, stunningly beautiful, rushes in with a Sharpie marker. What's your name? She whispers, her breath tickling his ear. Kip, he whispers back. She writes it in block capitals, large enough to be seen from the stage, and presses the name tag to his chest. Undoubtedly, she feels his heart pounding through his shirt. More than anything in life, Kip wants to sit back down, but the blonde girl is watching him. He feels the ghost of her hand in the vicinity of his heart. Last year, I got into West Point. I'd be there right now, except that my girlfriend got pregnant. So I offered to marry her, for the baby, you know. It seemed like the right thing to do. His face feels very hot. He's ready to puke or pass out or both. So I refused the appointment. I stayed in Houston and I went to work for my stepdad, which I swore I would never. He feels suddenly bone tired, weak with hunger, exhausted by the effort of explaining himself. Never mind that part. That part's a whole other story. Point is, last fall I found out she's seen this other guy. The baby didn't even mind. The maestro stares at him blankly. So, why are you angry? What do you mean, why am I angry? She lied to me. She ruined my life. Oh, I get it. The maestro's voice drops to a stage whisper. That is a colossal load of crap. <laughs> Kip's ears ring loudly, as though a deafening wave is breaking over his head. If your life is ruined, you ruined it. You're a failure, and you're pissed at the girl because she stole your excuse. His stare is perforating. For a moment, Kip is the only asshole in the room. What, she wrecked your chance to be a hero? Out of the goodness of your heart, you offered to marry her? What, she's supposed to be grateful? Of course she's fucking some other guy. Good for her. <laughs> he waves a hand, the girl's deception and treason summarily dismissed. Kip sinks back into his seat. Stand up. I'm not done with you. How long did you want to go to West Point? Kip stands. All my life. His eyes are burning, the greatest shame imaginable. He'd sooner wet himself than cry in public. Bullshit. If you wanted to go, you'd have gone. Kip's stomach lurches. His one visit to the academy had sparked recurrent nightmares, a truth he has confided to no one. The dismal corridors, the grim plebes in their gray uniforms, the stern interviewer so like his father, the gruff, belligerent firsties, dead-eyed boys who used to be human, hoo In a single year, they promised, Kip would be similarly transformed. The packed ballroom awaits his next words. The microphone quivers in his shaking hand. I've been hearing about that place all my life, he tells 250 total strangers. My dad went. It was the best thing ever happened to him. 
His dad, the colonel, calls twice a year, Christmas and Kip's birthday, though he usually gets the date wrong. A month early, two days late. Last Christmas, their conversation lasted nine minutes, eight of which involved West Point. This Christmas, the colonel didn't call. Fuck him, says the maestro. What, you should go to West Point because he went? Kip's heart swells with unfamiliar emotion. There is nothing else to call it. He realizes this later, but love. Werner Earhart has already transformed his life. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Daniel Goldfarb. Um, as a playwright, I'm not used to reading from my own work. Usually, there are other people standing in this position doing the reading for me. Um, the play I'm going to read from is my play Legacy, which uh, had its world premiere last summer at the Williamstown Theatre Festival. Uh, I chose Legacy because, uh, knock on wood, it's uh, coming to New York next season. And, um, uh, thank you. And, um, and it's about being a writer. It's about being a novelist. And, it, I, and, it, and it, the two of the four main characters, there are only four characters in the play, are novelists. One uh, legendary novelist and one, uh, one of his graduate students. Um, the play is called Legacy. It is also a little bit inspired by the sacrifice of Isaac from the Bible. Uh, if you can imagine, instead of me standing here um, playing Neil at Williamstown last summer was Eric Bogosian, and playing Suzanne last summer was Jessica Hecht. Um, I don't know if you guys know Jessica, but she... Eric is amazing, but Jessica is amazing. <laughs> okay, so uh, here we go. Legacy, scene one. A large apartment on Riverside Drive in the lower hundreds. It hasn't been renovated since the 90s, since Suzanne and Neil moved into it. Columbia faculty housing. Wood, clutter, Persian rug, books, papers. Neil, 60s, with reading glasses, smoking a cigarette, reads a weathered copy of the New York Times book review on the couch. He stops, rubs his eyes, shakes his head, reads some more, hurls the magazine across the room, gets up, goes across the room, bends down, picks up the magazine, throws out his back. Fuck, my back. Ow, fuck. Sound of a key. He moans. He effortfully stumbles back to the couch. One second. He quickly puts out the cigarette, hides the giant glass ashtray under the couch, and lies down, attempting to look casual and relaxed. <laughs> Suzanne, mid-40s, enters with a Zabar's bag. She goes to the kitchen, begins unloading bagels, locks, chocolate babka, coffee. Suzanne, hey, they took out a fresh Novi right when they called my number. It's just delicious and fresh and no fishiness. Neil, mmm. Suzanne, what? She inhales suspiciously. You've been smoking again. 
Neil, no, no, I haven't. Suzanne, Neil, please, you're killing yourself. He rolls his eyes. I don't want you to even bring one of those things in here again. Do you understand me? He looks away. Look at me. Look at me when I'm talking to you. It's a co-op, a non-smoking building, no less. Neil, there are grandfather laws. Suzanne, no, there aren't, grandfather. You know how I abhor nicotine, how it sticks to your fingers, your breath, the yellow film it leaves on our sheets. Neil, okay, fine, I get it. Suzanne, what's wrong? Neil, my fucking back again. Suzanne, what is it really? He throws the magazine at her. She looks at it. Oh, honey, you're still reading that? It's been four weeks already. Neil, reading, Neil, Neil, reading. Neil, sorry, not reading. Neil, reading Neil Abrams' slim in more ways than one new novel legacy makes it more than clear that that is what he has on his mind as his work and the world in which he writes becomes more and more antiquated and culturally irrelevant. (laughs) Suzanne, you've memorized it? Uh, Neil, puppy dog eyes, come on, Suzanne, Come on, no one even reads the Times anymore since they started charging for it online. Ten free articles a month? What is that? It's the 28th, for God's sake. You're safe now. Everyone ran out of their free articles weeks ago. Uh, Neil, the way my students look at me, it's unbearable. They're uncomfortable. A mixture of arrogance and pity and shame. If nothing else, I'm an educator. How am I ever going to be able to hold court in class again? Suzanne, look, you know I think it's brilliant. The best thing you've ever written. And perhaps the best thing anyone's ever written, period. (laughs) She didn't get it. Besides, you're too old for this. Neil, no, I just, I need to read it. Suzanne, need, you need water, you need exercise, Lipitor. It's tattooed itself into your soul and made my life miserable. And I spend my days immersed in the Holocaust. The last thing I need is a downer when I get home. She finds the ashtray under the couch. She takes a matchbook and lights it on fire. She puts the flaming paper in a metal trash can. Neil, are you crazy? What the fuck are you doing? Suzanne, life is too short to worry about bullshit like that. Neil, I can read it online. Suzanne, of course you can, for a fee. It was a theatrical gesture to make a point. You have so much to be excited about. This is such a huge year for you. Neil, I'm a failure. Suzanne, when are you going to help me sort through this place? The university keeps calling and asking when it's going to be ready. Neil, I don't know what they expect to find in those papers. Clichés. Suzanne, Neil. Neil, I'm old and I have nothing. Suzanne, what are you talking about? I'm 99. Neil, so what does that make me? Suzanne, you, you're still 38. Neil, not 36. A 38-year-old failure, a 100-year-old, 5-year-old failure. The number is irrelevant. It's the fact that I'm a failure. Suzanne, your new favorite word. Neil, forgive my moment of indulgent self-loathing. Suzanne, moment? Neil, it's not easy reading that you've become culturally irrelevant in the New York Times. Suzanne, which, by the way, has become culturally irrelevant. Neil, I'm an old gray lady. It's true. Look at me. Look at me. Suzanne, I wish you had been with me in D.C. Friday. Really, she was so fucking inspiring, Neil. Her story, well, 
all survivors have great stories, but this woman, if you can rate Holocaust experiences, she's a 10. Diet Coke? He shakes his head no, she cracks one open, drinks straight from the can. I mean, it's been so long since I've interviewed an actual survivor. They're basically all gone now. Now it's about the next generation, how those scars are passed on, and that's interesting too, and worthy, and boy, oh boy, are they ever passed on, and I'm glad I still have a job, but there's nothing like sitting across from the ones that actually lived through it. It's fucking powerful. Once in a blue moon, I get overcome just recording these stories, and this was one of those blue moon times from Hungary originally. She's even gone back to visit. Neil, I should get her to talk to my students. She sounds culturally relevant. <laughs> Suzanne, you should. She is. They'll go nuts. Her family experienced the entire smorgasbord of horrors. Her brothers were used by the Hungarian army to test for landmines. They all found one. Four brothers, four mines. Neil, here we go again. Suzanne, this is the last one, I promise. I emailed the footage for Steven, and he was so moved, he took off his baseball cap in respect. When Steven Spielberg takes off his baseball cap, this is it for me, and then I'm done. She unwraps the fish. She and her parents and her pregnant sister were taken to Auschwitz. Dr. Mengele, getting them after their journey, she was amazed by his attractiveness, a gentleman so handsome he even wore gloves. That detail never ceases to get me. Gloves, what a freak. He pointed her parents to go left to the gas chamber. He pointed her to go right to the work camp. Life or death, left or right. And he made her sister stay with him for tests. She shudders and starts putting together her bagel with lox and cream cheese and starts eating. One day she sees her sister, runs to her, risking her life, kisses her, and this is where she started to cry. She said she could feel her sister sucking the life out of her. This woman lives with this every moment of her life, her sister dead, brothers dead, parents dead. Now she's married. She's a booby. She showed me pictures of her grandchildren named for her murdered family. There's a Cooper for a Chaim, a Madison for a Miriam. What? But you should have seen her, Shep Nachas. Her granddaughter is going to rabbinical school, lesbian. Her two grandsons, a soon-to-be doctor, a soon-to-be lawyer. And now, what, she's almost 90? But still, every year for a couple weeks, she drops everything and volunteers in the Israeli army. I mean, if it wasn't so goddamn beautiful, I'd say chutzpah. She said, I overcame alcohol. I overcame sleeping pills. I sing in a choir. I've never seen so much life, so much love and desire for it in anyone. She does whatever she wants to do, and everything she wants to do fits into the most peaceful, harmonious moral code. It was a joy. Usually I sit on the train depressed, but I was writhing with energy and life. Even lust, Neil, if you can believe it. She lifts a finger, goes to the bedroom, comes back with a Victoria's Secret bag. She shows him what she bought. What do you think? Easter colors, right? Neil, Holocaust lingerie? Did you? Are you nuts? Suzanne, you think I'm insane? Neil, no, yes, no. He looks off. Suzanne, what? Talk to me, because waiting two years for a new novel isn't going to work this time. Neil, I'm done with novels. Suzanne, what? Neil, don't say that. Don't even joke. Neil, what am I going to write about? Death? Senility? Nothing's ever tackled that with any artistry or honesty since Lear. There's no point. Suzanne, my goodness. Uh, Neil, unless Suzanne, yes. Neil, what if? Suzanne, what if what? Neil, I don't know. 
Suzanne, you do know. Don't shut me out. I can help you get through this if you let me. Maybe we should get out of the city. Fresh air, cider. You want to go up to the Cape? Take some time? Eat a lobster roll? Neil, no. Suzanne, what then? Neil, you're going to think I'm crazy. Suzanne, too late. Spill it. Neil, just that... Maybe it's not too late for us to have a child. It's like a punch in the gut for Suzanne. This hangs there. She looks away. I know we both thought this world, the downward trajectory of what America has become, Paul Ryan, the tea party, pizza with cheese stuffed in the crust. Suzanne, you thought that, Neil. You! She covers her eyes and tries to collect herself. And you convinced me. Do you know how hard it was? How long it took me to get there? Neil, I always thought I had my students and my work to leave behind, and that was enough, more than enough, teaching, writing. And then one day I woke up and I knew I'd been lying to myself. Suzanne, when? Neil, maybe two years ago? Three? Suzanne, three? I was still... Why didn't you say anything? Neil, spent so many years convincing you I didn't want to admit I was wrong. Suzanne, wrong? You think you can just lay this on me like that? Neil, I don't know. Yes? <laughs> Truthfully, I always thought I was above it, that my mind was too interesting to waste on something as banal as raising a child, potty training, and goodnight moon, and trips to George Orwell's Disney World. But when I really look inward, I have to admit that I don't want to leave this terrible existence without having that experience. Suzanne, I've wanted this for so many years. All the therapy I went through, the Kleenex, the justifying, but I let it go. It's too late. We're too old, Neil. I'm too old. It's too much for me. Neil, come on. You'd be a wonderful mother. Suzanne, really? Like now? Neil, why not? Suzanne, Neil, a child? Now I have salmon hands. <laughs> Neil, let's face it, Suzanne. It, it's now or never. I'm not getting any younger. Hell, you'll be changing my diapers before you know it. And you psh, will probably have to do extensive genetic testing. With your almost menopausal eggs and my gray sperm, the odds of happy and healthy are on par with achieving better gun control in America, the land of the used to be free. But why not at least give it a try? Carpe diem. Suzanne, you're back, Neil. You'll go on top, Suzanne. I don't know, Neil. Neil, think about it. He kisses her. Suzanne, I don't know. He tries to hold her hand. She doesn't let him. No, you can't just... Not yet. I need some time. Neil, okay. You know where to find me. As he's about to exit, Suzanne sits back on the couch. Suzanne, a baby, huh? Neil, a beautiful little baby. He exits, she exhales, buries her face in her hands. Blackout. I can't wait to see that in New York. Pretty good actor, too. Hi, everybody. My name is Andre Debuse, and I'm going to read the first 10 minutes of this new novel, which should come out next year. It's called Gone So Long. And thank you, Andrea and Michael, for having me again to this beautiful Binkin in the wilderness. Once again, her name moves through Daniel's blood like floating debris. It scrapes along his bones and pokes at his old organs and is a steady, pulsing nudge in his head. 
For days now, it has lodged itself in the Syrian ache in his hips and lower back, and he knows there's only one way to free it, but first he needs to finish these chairs he's caning under the sun. His eyes sting. His work glasses have slipped to the end of his nose. Daniel takes them off and lets them hang around his neck. He wipes the sweat off his forehead, then stands to stretch his back, but the pain remains. The sickness deep inside him now, he can feel it. It's not going anywhere. He sits on his stool and puts his glasses on and gets back to work. Today he notices his hands. They're his old man's, stubby fingers chipped in yellowed nails, though his father's always had carnival paint in his cuticles that never came out. Daniel reaches for the nail file he uses to weave the cane under and over itself. A warm wind kicks up from the east and brings with it beach sounds, or maybe it's just Daniel's memory of them. The creaking gears of the Ferris wheel and the popping water balloons and the cries of gulls. There's the tinny whine of the carousel organ and the rattling jerk of the roller coaster cars, the shrieks of women and children hurled out over the hissing surf. But always there comes, rising up from inside him and getting louder, the blaring rock and roll of the Himalaya, Sugar Sugar, Proud Mary, Tommy Rowe singing, he's so dizzy his head is spinning. Yesterday, after months of thinking about it, Daniel finally drove around the midway, and it still isn't half what it used to be. The wooden roller coaster was torn down years ago, and the Ferris wheel they have now is kitty-sized, the Himalaya gone, though there's a strip club with tall white columns at the doors. On a sandwich board out front, a sign read, Father's Day lap dances, half price. Apologize for that. (laughs) Daniel hasn't seen his daughter in 38 years, and there is so much to tell her, but why would she listen? There was her mother's brown skin, her long, wet hair that smelled like the ocean and baby oil and made him want to kiss every part of her. There was her small face and straight back, her breasts and brown nipples. All these years later, he can still see them, the tiny dark freckles around them, how white her breasts looked, the rest of her always so tanned because they were both amusement park kids who lived at the beach. Danny Ahern, Liam's son, the artist boy, though only a few called his father an artist. They called him Ahern or Old Liam or the Magic Mick because he could take sea air beaten shit and make it new again. The giant clown's head on the roof of the funhouse. All the signage for joints up and down the midway. The five o'clock club, Willie's hard and soft ice cream. The pavilion and bathhouse and Shaheen's Funorama Park. And Linda's father owned the Penny Arcade. Her family lived there too, though you wouldn't know it. Past the skee-ball and slot machines, the pinballs and billiard tables was a black wall. And on the other side of that wall was the apartment Linda lived in with her mother and little brother Paul and her father, Jerry Doobie, who hated Danny because he could smell how much he wanted his Linda. Everybody wanted her, and that was the problem. No, that's old thinking. The problem had always been Danny's, though for him it was more than just wanting. It was a need so fierce his own body felt like a too tight suit, that the blood in his veins was about to turn on him until he was with her again. And then when he did have her, that hot worm of possession burrowed into his heart. 
He'd never been one of the handsome boys, not like Jimmy Squeeze, who got his name because he could hold a pencil between his chest muscles, or Tony Scarf, or Tony Scarf with his long hair and 500 ski ball tickets hanging off one shoulder, or Manny Pina and his lean torso and face you could put on a cereal box. And there were so many others, beach raft from all the stinking mill towns of the Merrimack Valley, sometimes a few rich boys from New York or Connecticut who rented air-conditioned cottages on the sand past the bar rooms at the edge of the strip. But Danny had something the others did not, something he never would have known about if Will Price hadn't told him that afternoon in May 1969, the season just about to kick into gear. Kane likes wet heat like this morning's. This is the sixth of eight chairs from a 100-year-old dining set, and he had to refinish each one before the caning could even begin. The other seven are within easy reach, like everything, because he lives small. His trailer rests against the stand of torch pines, so overgrown the branches cover his tin roof. And when it's hot like today, the pitch goes soft and he can smell it in the ocean as he works in the yard. It's a 40 by 40 patch of ground he did not earn, but it's his anyway. Three years ago, he hired a man to build him a tall plank fence, enclosing Daniel Singlewide in this square with a narrow gate for his Tacoma. He hired a carpenter to build him a small shop for his caning, one he framed on concrete against the west fence, and Daniel liked how much smaller that made his patch. He was paroled 23 years ago, but really, he's never been all the way out. His days and nights are as regimented now as they were then. Awake at 6, in the shop by 7, lunch at 11, and the rest of the day, unless he's late with a piece of furniture, he drives over the river into Port City in the Council on Aging, picks a name, and drives an old man or woman to a doctor's appointment or to the plaza to shop for food and medicine. Excuse me. If he's not needed, it's his schooling time. Sometimes he lies on his bed in the trailer and listens to a book on tape, history mostly. He just finished a long one all about John Adams. Or he goes to the library, a one-story building in the town square where it's cool in the summer, warm in the winter, and he likes the three ladies who work behind the desk, though no two are ever there at the same time. They seem to be mothers working mother's hours, warm, polite, and smiling, all three getting a little heavy. People might think he doesn't like women, but he does. He's never stopped. Though there is one older woman he stays away from. She's tall and her hair is gray like his, and she does her work standing up. A few times when he's come in, she's glanced at him over the rim of her glasses like she thinks she might know him, but he just keeps walking. It may have been a mistake to come back here, but when his mother got sick, he just had to, and now she's been gone three years, and nobody was more surprised than he was that she died with some money, leaving him at this late age of 63 with his first home, a shop, and this patch of ground he sweats on under the sun. Daniel sticks the end of the cane into the next hole in the seat's frame and begins to weave it back across. He's thirsty, but that can wait. He needs more aspirin, but it doesn't do the job anyway, and that can wait too. Working on aging furniture, it's so easy to keep drifting back. 
He thinks about his old man and how quiet he always was and how that made Danny quiet, his mother doing the talking for all three of them. She was from New Jersey and had that accent from there, which made her sound less intelligent than she was. She had a high voice, too, and it seemed to come from that hooked nose of hers, the one she gave Danny, and she was always talking to herself. She'd be washing the dishes, Danny's father sitting at the table, slowly reading the Boston Herald, sipping his bushmills, Danny sitting in front of his plate he'd wipe clean with a slice of bread, waiting to be excused by his old man. Then over the running water in the sink would come Ma's voice, Yep. I said that to her. I did. Don't tell me I didn't. Or, I know it. Three times in one day, the poor thing. And Danny's father would turn a page of his paper, and that was Danny's moment. The only time his father would tolerate an interruption. Everything he did concentrated, focused, and solitary. Three times Danny was in solitary. And it was strange how he became his father. Time was Danny's now. Time was wet concrete he had to wade through. Time was thick air and the buzz of fluorescent lights that never went out. And Danny lived those days by reading one word at a time out of the Bible, the only book they gave him, most of it old words he couldn't even sound out in his head. And then, when he couldn't tell any more what was morning or afternoon or night, even when the cold eggs on his plate told him, he became his mother, talking to himself though he was really talking to his little girl, Susan. He sat on his bunk and told her things out loud he needed her to hear. He knows he did. But what? What could he possibly have said? Thank you. Thank you. Um, If you'll indulge me for a moment, I just wanted to um, say a couple of things. I would like to acknowledge the incredibly, um, incredible hard work and dedication of the Lighthouse staff, especially the ones that are here, Laura and Jenna and Corey and Dan and Andrea, um, all of our staff and all of our volunteers are absolutely amazing. Um, people keep asking me, they say, you know, are you doing okay? Are you all right? And I say, I usually just show up and drink beer and just talk to people. So um, they're the ones who do all the work, and they're absolutely amazing. I don't know. We would not survive without them. They're fabulous people, and they're just they're fun to hang out with. So um, you guys are amazing. Um, and also, uh, it's Dan Manzanares' birthday tomorrow. So would you mind um, joining me in singing happy birthday to Dan? Anybody else have a birthday coming up soon? Anybody? Birthday today? No? Just Dan. Happy birthday to you. Sorry, don't have a cake. Happy birthday. He's over there. Happy birthday, dear Danny. Happy birthday to And now for some poetry. Hi. Uh, This has been an amazing reading. Such a pleasure to read with these phenomenal writers. Um... And uh, it's been 
it's been such a great, I keep wanting to say week, but it's only really been a few days. <laughs> it's not that it feels long. Um, it's been marvelous. So thanks for having me. Uh, I'm just going to read five poems. Um, I say the number so that if you like what you hear, you can be like, oh, yeah, there's four more. And if you hate it, you can be like, okay, countdown. <laughs> so I'm going to begin with the first poem from Bright Dead Things, which is a poem for the Kentucky Oaks, which is the day before the Derby when all the Phillies race. Um, and, of course, I say that that's what it's about, but it's not about that at all. How to Triumph Like a Girl I like the lady horses best How they make it all look easy Like running 40 miles per hour Is as fun as taking a nap Or grass I like their lady horse swagger After winning Ears up girls, ears up But mainly, let's be honest I like that they're ladies as if this big, dangerous animal is also a part of me. That somewhere inside the delicate skin of my body, there pumps an eight-pound female horse heart. Giant with power. Heavy with blood. Don't you want to believe it? Don't you want to lift my shirt and see the huge, beating, genius machine that thinks, no, it knows, it's going to come in first. Um, this is a poem that came out in um, February in The New Yorker, and um, someone tweeted to me, um, I really liked your garden poem. And I was sort of horrified. <laughs> I thought, oh my God, I'm at the age where I write garden poems. Um, so it does have some gardening in it. The burying beetle. I like to imagine even the plants want attention. So I weed for four hours straight, assuring the tomatoes feel July's hot breath on the neck, the Japanese maple can stretch, the sweet potatoes, spider plants, the Asiatic lilies can flourish in this place we've dared to say we own. Each nicked spindle of morning glory, or kudzu, or purslane, or yellow rocket, barbarial vergaris, for Christ's sake. And I find myself missing everyone I know. I don't know why. First come the piles of nuts edge and creeper, and then an ache that fills the skin like the sarcospora blight that's killing the blue sky rocket juniper slowly and from the inside out. Sure, I know what it is to be lonely, but today's special is a physical need to be touched by someone decent a pulsing palm to the back. My man is in South Africa still, and people just keep dying, even when I try to pretend like they're not. The crown vetch and the curly duck are almost eliminated as I survey the neatness of my work. 
I don't feel I deserve this time or this small plot of earth I get to mold into someplace livable. I lost God a while ago, and I don't want to pray. But I can picture the plants deepening right now into the soil, wanting to live. So I lie down among them in my ripped pink tank top, filthy and covered in sweat, among red-bearing beetles and dirt that's been turned and turned like a problem in the mind. Thank you. Um, these are two new poems uh, that are that have to do with fertility issues, and um, I was happy to hear Daniel's piece, um, Legacy. Uh, poem, you know that game, Would You Rather, with kids that you play? Yeah. Would You Rather. Remember the car ride to SeaTac, how your sister's kids played a frenzied game of Would You Rather, where each choice tick-tocked between superpowers of towering piles of food too often denied. Would you rather have fiery lasers that shoot out of your eyes, or... Eat Sundays with whipped cream for every meal. We dealt it out quick without stopping to check ourselves for the truth. We played so hard that I got good at the questions, learned that there had to be an equality to each weighted ask. Now I'm an expert at comparing things that give the illusion they equal each other. You said our plan B was just to live our lives. More time, more sleep, travel. And still, I'm making a list of all the places I found out I wasn't carrying a child. At the outdoor market in San Telmo, Isla Negra's wide iris of sea, the baseball stadium, the supermarket, the Muhammad Ali Museum. But always the last time tops the list, in the middle of the Golden Gate Bridge. Looking out toward Alcatraz, a place they should burn and re-deliver to the gulls and cormorants, common daisies, and seagrass. Down below the girder that's still not screened against the jumpers so that it seems almost like a dare, an invitation. We watched a seal make a sinuous shimmy in the bay. Would you rather? Would I rather? The game is endless and without a winner. Do you remember how the seal was so far under the deafening sound of the traffic, the whir of wind mixed with car horns and gasoline, such a small speck of black movement alone in the churning waves between rock and shore? Didn't she seem, didn't she seem happy? Um, it was interesting going through some fertility treatments during the season when you're breeding all the mares in Kentucky. Um, and so this is about our mare. Uh, her name is Top Ten List because she was a grade one stakes winner. Um, and uh, it also is about the choice to be an artist. The carrying... The sky is white with November's teeth, and the air is ash and wood smoke. 
a flush of color from the dying tree, a cargo train speeding through, and there, that's me, standing in the wintering grass, watching the dog suffer the cold leaves. I'm not large from this distance, just a fence post, a hedge of holly. Wider still beyond the rumble of overpass, mares look for what's left of green in the pasture. A few weanlings kick out, and theirs is the same sky, white like a calm flag of surrender pulled taut. A few farms over, there's our mare, her belly barrel round with foal, or idea of foal. It's Kentucky, late fall, and any mare worth her salt is carrying the next potential stakes winner. Ours, her coat thicker with the season's muck, leans against the black fence, and this image is heavy within me. How my own body, empty, clean of secrets, knows how to carry her, knows we were all meant for something. I'm going to close with a poem um, that's a slightly political. Um, and all I can say is this is how I feel about this song. A new national anthem. The truth is, I've never cared for the national anthem. If you think about it, it's not a good song. It's too high for most of us. With the rocket's red glare... And then there are the bombs. Always, always, there's war and bombs. Once I sang it at homecoming and threw even the tenacious high school band off key. But the song didn't mean anything, just a call to the field, something to get through before the pummeling of youth. And what of the stanzas we never sing? The third that mentions no refuge could save the hireling and the slave. Perhaps the truth is, every song of this country has an unsung third stanza. Something brutal snaking underneath us as we blindly sing the high notes with a beer sloshing in the stands, hoping our team wins. Don't get me wrong. I do like the flag. How it undulates in the wind like water, elemental, and best when it's humbled, brought to its knees, clung to by someone who has lost everything, when it's not a weapon. When it flickers, when it folds up so perfectly you can keep it until it's needed, until you can love it again, until the song in your mouth feels like sustenance, a song where the notes are sung by even the ageless woods, the short grass plains, the Red River Gorge, the fistful of land left unpoisoned, the song that's our birthright, that's sung in silence when it's too hard to go on, that sounds like someone's rough fingers weaving into another's, that sounds like a match being lit in an endless cave, the song that says, my bones are your bones, and isn't that enough? Thank you. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.